Welcome to the New Life Podcast. Here we want you to experience the grace of God. So through this sermon, we hope to come alongside you as you grow in your relationship with Jesus. To learn more about New Life, please visit our website at newlifeonline.org. Here's today's message. Well, good morning. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Kirk Bodie. I am uh, not on staff. Matter of fact, by trade, I'm a lawyer. So if you know any good lawyer jokes, uh, keep them to yourself, please. Uh, most of the lawyer jokes I know, there's, there's always a mention of something about hell or sharks. or There's a theme amongst most lawyer jokes. Um, but I get a chance to speak today, and I'm glad. I work with the pastors. Uh, we put together some sermon series, and we're working through this sermon series now called Supporting Cast, which is fantastic because we get an opportunity to address and talk about some of the biblical characters that we don't always talk about. Uh, often we talk about Moses, or we talk about Abraham, certainly we talk about Jesus, um, and, and oftentimes we don't mention some of the more minor characters of the Bible that are like the supporting characters to support some of the ones that we know. We've talked about Barnabas and how instrumental he was in the life of Paul. Ananias was the same way. Uh, we talked about Joseph of Arimathea uh, and the role that he played and lessons we can learn from him. So it's always nice to know that the kingdom of God doesn't depend always upon those that are in the limelight and have the big name. It's average people being used by God in an extraordinary way. That means we are in good company. We, for the most part in this room, we're average people. And it's nice to know God uses average people like you and I. So today we are going to talk about uh, this, the man in the Old Testament by the name of Achan. It's spelled A-C-H-A-N. Uh, it's, a, it's a character that we all don't often talk about and know very little about him for the most part. He's kind of an unknown character. What's very unusual in this series is all the characters we've talked about so far have been very positive characters. We've got great examples before us. Achan is a negative example. So we're going to highlight a bad person from the Bible today. Uh, it's a fascinating story of Achan. We're going to go through it here in a minute. Um, but maybe you've heard the phrase uh, that there is sin in the camp. Uh, there is something is wrong. There's sin somewhere in the camp. This probably comes out of the story of Achan. But perhaps if you are a Shakespeare aficionado, you may have heard the phrase, this is from Hamlet, that says there is something rotten in Denmark. Um, so if you had, that's, you've heard a little bit of Hamlet here today. Um, the, the idea is that there's something wrong, can't get our finger on it, but something is wrong that's having effects throughout the camp or throughout the uh, environment that it's in. So we're going to talk about that with Aiken today. Uh, and we're also going to mention the word, and let me mention it up front. Uh, we're going to talk about lessons about God, and we're going to talk about the word propitiation. Uh, propitiation. Now, that's a great theological world, word, but let me say this. It's a biblical word. It's in the Bible. So today, we're going to give you a chance. So when you go out today and someone asks you what you learned at church or what did the pastor talk about or the preacher talk about, you say, oh, he talked about propitiation. And they'll think you're really smart when you use big theological words like that. Uh, we're going to get to that because there's some great lessons about God and propitiation, but there's great lessons about us and the effect of sin. The effect of sin not only on us as individuals, but the effect of sin on people around us. 
And you've probably seen it, a person in public office, maybe a minister or someone that's a, a highly influential person, and sin comes into their life and destroys perhaps their family, their ministry, uh, relationships. So let me start out by telling what, what I've called the uh, story from my own life called the pus story, okay? Now, um, it's about pus, so brace yourself a little bit here. So back in 1971, uh, I went, to, went away to college, and after my freshman year at college, I played baseball uh, during the summer months on the church league, okay? And I slid into third base, and I dislocated my shoulder right here. This shoulder came out of socket, uh, and I put it back, got it back into socket, and I thought it would be okay. I took care of it and everything else. Well, it kept coming out of socket, so I had to have surgery. Went through the following year at school. So in the summer of 72, I had surgery on this shoulder in Elgin, Illinois. And they they cut it open. They did their stuff. And I was supposed to be in the hospital for one or two days, is what they said. Uh, But after about two days, I kept getting worse. I had terrible fever, uh, terrible headaches, chills, uh, wasn't eating anything, um, just feeling worse and worse and worse. And... Two days turned into four days, turned into seven days, turned into 14 days I was in a hospital. Uh, They could not figure what is wrong, what was wrong with me. And then on the 13th day, in the middle of the night, my incision blew open. And there was blood and pus everywhere. And immediately when that incision blew open and all the pus came out, I immediately felt better. Now you're saying... We're, isn't there a malpractice case here somewhere, you know? It's, but I wasn't thinking about that at the time. I don't, if I knew a good lawyer, I would have talked about him. Um, but the, once that infection came out, how much better I felt, and I recovered. Within a day or two, I was out of the hospital. I've got a huge scar right here, right now. I don't want to show you that. Uh, that is my memory of that pus story all the time. But the, the principle of that is that until hidden infection is discovered, exposed, and dealt with swiftly, healing could not take place. And that's kind of the moral of the story of Achan. We're going to get into the story here of Achan. And you'll see how my pus story relates to the story of Achan. So, to set up the story of Achan, this is in the Old Testament, to set the story, if you remember, the people of Israel are slaves in Egypt. Pharaoh was ruling over them. Uh, And Moses then appears on the scene to lead the people out of Egypt and God had led them to what what we know is to be the promised land, the land that God had promised them. So they leave Egypt. They go across the Red Sea. Remember the Red Sea parts? They cross the Red Sea. Uh, They go, and they're heading toward the promised land. They had a little detour on the way because there was some problems, and they ended up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years Uh, But they finally get to the Jordan River, which is the Jordan River. On the other side of the Jordan River is the promised land. And Moses dies, and Joshua prepares the people for D-Day because across the Jordan River is the city of Jericho, the first city that they need to conquer. So this turns into uh, the story that we're going to pick up here in Joshua chapter 7. You can follow with with me on the screens. This is the fall of Jericho. We kind of know this story. It says this, on the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, 
Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are, to be, are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed so that everyone charged straight in and took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. That's a story that's familiar. The walls of Jericho fall down. Nobody's killed. Nobody's injured. They conquer this huge walled city in a miraculous way. But you remember the command of God, what's called the ban, B-A-N, the ban. He says this, and I read it a minute ago. It says, but keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and, big, and bring trouble on it. So there's a warning there. So enter now into our story, our character, Achan. Now in Joshua 7, verse 1, it's is a spoiler alert. He t the writer of the, of, the, of the Bible here tells us kind of the, what happened, but it says this, Joshua 7, 1, but... The Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zimri, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. The anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. See, at this point, this is a fact we know as readers, but Joshua doesn't know this yet. The people don't know this yet, but we know that Achan is the culprit who violated the ban, the clear warning from God. But notice two things here, too. It talks about the anger or the wrath of God, and it talks about it burned not just against Achan, but it burned against the whole people of Israel. One man's sin caused God's anger to burn against all the people. That's an important concept. So, continuing with the story, next up, after Jericho, um, it says this, well, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, the next city in line to be conquered, which is near Beth-Avon to the east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai, and when they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or 3,000 men to take it, and do not weary the whole army, for there's only a few people there. So they're pretty cocky at this point. Jericho collapsed without a loss of life, without even a battle, so to speak. And now the next one is clearly God's on our side. He's paved the way. They're overconfident. Um, easy opponent, just a few people there. Just send, all, just send in the second string, and we can take this city. But surprise, surprise, things turn south for the people of Israel. It says this, so about 3,000 men went up. Just a small portion went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai. Huh? who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries 
and struck them down on the slopes. At, at this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. So like, what in the world happened? We were on a roll. God is with us. He blessed us. He, we had a huge victory at Jericho, and now we lose this, vic- this battle at Ai? And 36 people are killed. 36. Don't forget that. People died. There's widows and there's fatherless children at home because of this loss at Ai. And the hope, the hope of centuries of Israelites to go into the promised land of God, this was our destiny. This is what we were supposed to do. And now it all seems like it's gone. Why? So they don't know what we know about Achan already, okay? But here, here it comes up. The leader reacts. Joshua then reacts to this sudden defeat at Ai. He says this. It says, Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and other people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? It's a remarkable prayer to God. Not the kind of prayer that we usually associate with the prayer to God. But he's praying to God. He's talking to God. Complaining to God, so to speak. And his concern... First of all, for, he says, for our name. Then he says, for your name, God. So his concern is kind of in the wrong spot. So then God now responds to this prayer of Joshua. And you got, it's hard to, when you read it in the scripture, you don't get the full emotion, but God is ticked off. God is angry with Joshua. Here's what it says. The Lord says to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. So, Wow, God is angry. He is ticked off at Joshua and the people. There is sin. God is basically saying, get up, Joshua. Don't just whine about this. Get up, do something about it, and do something about it now. So then God gives instructions to Joshua what to do. He says this. Go, consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There are devoted things among you, Israel, you cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. In the morning, present yourself tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord chooses shall come forward clan by clan. The clan the Lord chooses shall come forward family by family. And the family the Lord chooses shall come forward man by man. Whoever is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So God commands to do this elaborate, kind of unusual selection process. 
because this clear and unequivocal command from God has been violated. So, sin in the camp must be confronted and dealt with quickly. God's telling Joshua, don't be timid about this. Don't be timid. Don't be hesitant. Deal with it and deal with it swiftly. And here's how to do it. So here's what happens next. It says, early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward. There it is, by tribes. Judah was chosen. The clans of Judah came forward, and the Zerahites were chosen. He had the clan of Zerahites come forward by families, and Zimri was chosen. Now, you can see Achan is starting to sweat a little bit, okay? It's, the noose is starting to narrow on him. Joshua had his family come forward, man by man, and Achan son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was chosen. Finally, he's the man. Interesting process. Why do you think God had this process to go tribe and clan and family? It's, it's, it's kind of curious, but in my opinion, well, first of all, fear can be a good thing. Uh, you, people see that, and they're, they're not going to mess with God in the future about this devoted stuff when they see what goes on here. But I think... Could it be that God was giving Achan a chance to raise his hand early in the process and say, it's me, I'm sorry? An opportunity perhaps for Achan to come forward to repent and receive mercy and grace? Could it be? Because um, it's an unusual process, it's clan by clan, family by family, tribe by tribe. Okay, so Joshua then confronts Achan. Achan's chosen in this selection process. That says this, then Joshua said to Achan, my, God, my son, give glory to God, the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan says this, it's true, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder the beautiful robe in Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them. And took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. Now, this is an interesting passage because notice the progression, okay? I saw, okay? He describes this beautiful robe. This is a beautiful robe from Babylonia. He probably looked at the label on the back. It said from Babylonia, made in Babylonia. Um, but he obviously felt it, looked at it lusted after it, he knew where it was from, he knew it was valuable, and he spent some time dwelling and obsessing on it. He knew exactly how much money he had, 200 shekels. That means he counted it out. One, two, three, I mean, he, like Scrooge, counting his money. He knew how much the gold weighed. He weighed it out. So we get the feel that he lingered over these items, he lusted over these items, deliberated over these items, coveted these items, and then, so not only did he that, he said, I saw them, I took them, and I hid them. Now, I saw, I took, I hid. That is the same progression of sin that we see in the third chapter of Genesis, at the, Adam and Eve. Here's what it says in Genesis with Adam and Eve. So when the woman, that's Eve, saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to, her, to the eyes. She looked at it and lingered on it. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. 
And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So this sequence of seeing something, kind of lusting after it, taking it, and hiding it. It also brings up the story of David and Bathsheba. That's exactly what happened with David and Bathsheba. He's minding his own business on his roof, and he looks, and he sees a beautiful woman. He takes the beautiful woman. And then he hides or tries to hide his sin. Okay, so after Achan tells his story, Joshua then needs to corroborate his story to see if it's true. He's doing what law enforcement people do in the practice of law. You get a confession, you've got to corroborate it with the facts. So here's what he does. Verse 22, so Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent. And there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites, and spread them out before the Lord. It's interesting and somewhat humorous that they find all this stuff, this robe and this mud, the shekels and the gold, and they find it, you know, that stuff wasn't going to do him any good. He was possessing material or valuable things that he wasn't supposed to have. It would be like you will go to the Louvre in Paris and you steal the Mona Lisa and you take it home, okay? You can't display it on your wall because... It's missing, and people will see it. You can't show it to people. Um, you can't take it to the pawn shop. It does you no good, and that's exactly what's going on here. Interesting that what Achan took, as valuable as it was, was of no value to him at all because he couldn't do anything with it. People would know where he got it from. So then the swift, decisive, and thorough sentence then Joshua, together with Israel, took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys and sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. It says there, then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. So we see they stoned the rest. What does it mean? That would mean his family, his animals, everything, everything that he had. And this passage, by the way, this can be a little bit of a troublesome passage about the nature of God, and, you, and it raises a lot of questions in people's minds about. What kind of God is this that the, the whole family, isn't this kind of harsh? The whole family and the animals are all killed because of Achan's sin? Well, hang on to that because we're going to come back to that. Because the, the epilogue of the story, the rest of the story is after Achan and his family and everything is burned, they return to battle. And they now have an overwhelming victory against the people of Ai. Because sin in the camp has been taken care of and dealt with and is gone, and victory can now proceed. And that brings back to the kind of the moral of the story is until the hidden infection of sin is exposed and brought out into the light, dealt with completely, the body, the people, cannot go forward in victory. So as we look at the story of Achan, what are some of the themes that come out of this? Uh, the first theme is the theme of sin. Now, 
not too often you go to church and you hear a sermon that deals with sin. Just like you don't go to church and hear sermons that deal a whole lot with hell. Um, But these are clear doctrines in the Bible, and these need to be taught and preached regularly. But as a funny story, remember Calvin Coolidge, his nickname was Silent Cal. He was the president of the United States, for those of you that have to take civics yet. Um, He was the president of the U.S. His nickname was Silent Cal. And he was known as to be a man of very few words. And he, went, he was a church-going guy, and he went to church, and he, he listened to an hour-and-a-half sermon by the preacher, and he came out, and the, the newspaper guy says, well, what did the preacher say in an hour? What did he preach on in an hour-and-a-half? And Calvin Coolidge says, sin. And the reporter thought it would be more than that, so he says, well, what did he have to say about sin? And Calvin Coolidge says, he was against it. That's it. Funny story, nothing to do with our message here today. But God takes sin seriously. That's something we don't like to think about, talk about, hear about, preach about. Um, We like the softer, loving side of God a little bit better. Yes, God is loving and patient and long-suffering, but there is a time that it runs out. Plenty of opportunity for Achan to change, but he doesn't change. God is a holy God, and he cannot countenance the presence of sin. You see, sin isn't just a personal matter. Sin, to some degree, always affects other people. We see that in here. Achan's sin affected a lot of people. The whole nation of Israel, by the way. Achan's family is clearly affected by sin. See, there are no private sins. We sometimes think, well, my sin's not much, and it's kind of a private thing. There are no private sins. What happens in Vegas never stays in Vegas. So back to the problem of Achan's entire family being destroyed. You know, we tend to look in society today, and especially the Western world, as individualistic. Every man stands or falls on their own merits we, we, we're, but we need to go back to the culture of the time and the culture that really dominates a lot of the world today, and that is groups and families are very important. If you noticed, we mentioned Rahab a little bit earlier. If you go back in Joshua, Rahab was, remember, she housed the spies and let the spies escape, and she was a hero. She's mentioned in the New uh, Testament, as a matter of fact. But it says Rahab, her entire family was saved from destruction because she acted righteously. The culture of the Bible deals with families and communities. Hence, for Achan's sin, God's anger burned, not just against Achan, but against the whole nation of Israel, against the camp, and against his own family. And a concept we often forget is that back in this day, males stood as the head of the family, the covenantal head of the family, the leader of the family. And blessings and or cursings came through the man, the leader of the family. So, as kind of an aside for men and fathers here today, your sin, fathers, affects your family. Never forget that. Your sin affects your family. But also, your godliness affects your family. Therefore, call is for men to become men of God, men of the Word of God, stand strong for God. Your family will benefit. Your family will notice. And also, 
Take the lead. Take the spiritual lead in your family. Lead your family as a family, as a group. So sin in the camp within the body of Christ, it's a powerful enemy to a fruitful ministry. And sometimes we look at the wrath of God in this case and think God's angry. I don't like that kind of God. He's, but, you know, God's wrath sometimes is a healing thing. It's a purging thing. Get rid of the infection. Get rid of the sin so that the body can go forward into fruitful ministry. In this case, they can start winning battles again once they get rid of the stink that's in the camp, the sin that's in the camp. So hidden sin, when uncovered, must be dealt with swiftly, decisively, and thoroughly. Hence, back to the pus story. Swiftly, decisively, and get all that rot out. So we need, to deal, we need to learn to deal with our own sin the same way. We need to be ruthless about our own sin. You know, Jesus, this is the New Testament, this is Jesus in Matthew, he says this, pretty shocking. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, Jesus isn't talking about amputation and gouging out eyes literally, but the point is very clear. Deal with sin ruthlessly, swiftly. Don't be timid about it. So when it deals with sin in our lives, maybe there's some things in our lives we need to do ruthlessly. Maybe some of us need to get rid of the computer or get off social media, uh, turn off the television. Maybe some of us need to terminate an inappropriate or unhealthy relationship that we have. Whatever it is, sin is serious business to God. Achan is proof of that. And only when sin is discovered and dealt with can healing begin. So what pockets of sin might you have in your own life? What areas that you might think is secret sin? Maybe it's an attitude, uh, judgmentalism, envy, anger, and you think, that's just a private thing. It's only in my head. Um, there's no such thing as a secret sin. You know and God knows. It's not secret. It, affects, it has effects beyond you. We see that with Achan. Sin never is in isolation. It always affects people around us, on your family, on your ministry. So let's talk a minute about the anger or the wrath of God. You know, it's like I said earlier, it's an, kind of an unpleasant thing to talk about, the wrath of God. God is a holy God. His, he's, his personal Righteousness is hostile to evil. It's just not in the Old Testament. And let me do a couple, several verses here from the New Testament. Listen to this. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Good news. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godliness godlessness, and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So 
The wrath of God burns against evil and burns against sin. But here's the good news. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 And to wait for this Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. That's the good news. So we can talk about the bad news about the wrath of God um, because unlike Achan, we are saved from the wrath of God through our trust and faith in Jesus Christ. This brings us back full circle to the word propitiation, the big word that we're going to use today, propitiation. It means satisfaction. It means the wrath of God was satisfied in Jesus Christ. Jesus' death on the cross was the atoning or propitiation of the wrath of God. We're going to be taking communion here at the end of the service, and it really, we celebrate the death of Jesus. Why? Because we don't have to experience that wrath of God because Jesus took that wrath for us. He rescued us, like it says, from the coming wrath. See, because of sin, there is a huge, huge problem between us and God. There is a holy God over here who cannot countenance sin. He's holy. His character is holy. And man over here is a sinner. We are sinners. And we are separated by God, from God, by nature. And our efforts to reach a holy God are futile. We try to do good works. We are born in America. We try to live a, a good life. We try, we try, we try. Nothing we can do can bridge that chasm between us and a holy God. The good news is Jesus, through God, God, through Jesus, bridges that gap so that we then can have access to a holy God, that our sin no longer is the barrier between us and God because Jesus satisfied God's wrath towards sin when he became sin and suffered in our place. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. See, Achan died because of his sin. Jesus died because of my sin and our sins. Therefore, we are spared eternal death because of Jesus. See, Jesus Christ is the only provision for our sin. That's the good news. The story of Achan is, scares the daylights out of us, but if you have Christ in your life, you don't have to worry about that wrath of God because Jesus took that wrath when he died on the cross. Romans 3 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all sinners and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. There's that word, satisfaction, by his blood on the cross, to be received by faith. We must receive that. This, is, this was to show God's righteousness because of, in divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So it's not enough just to know this. Each of us are called upon to decide what we're going to do with these truths, whether we just acknowledge them as interesting facts or interesting truths, but each one of us are called upon to decide whether we will individually put our faith and our trust 
in Jesus Christ. And that's something that everybody has to do at some time in their life. Must receive Jesus as their Savior and Lord. I did that in the spring of 1972. And like I did in 1972, if you haven't done that, you can escape the wrath of God. The wrath of God that Achan suffered by inviting Jesus into your life to be your Savior and your Lord so that we don't have to worry about the wrath of God. We don't have to worry about uh, death that we can live forever with Jesus when we die. Let's pray.